Gun control is an issue as divisive as any in American politics. There is, however, some common ground in at least one proposal for preventing gun violence. 97% of gun owners support requiring everybody who purchases a gun to undergo a background check so that we can determine whether they are legally allowed to have that gun. And in fact, the system has been pretty effective for those who are subject to it now. That's Todd Askew, AMA Director of Congressional Affairs at the 2019 AMA Annual Meeting in Chicago. On this episode of Moving Medicine, the second of two parts about physician advocacy, Mr. Askew discusses efforts to prevent gun violence, improve MACRA, and protect patients from surprise medical bills. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. Here's Todd Askew. So I wanted to cover three of the topics that we're spending a lot of time on that I think are really um, primed to um, have some action on Capitol Hill. So um, the first one is, is, preve is preventing gun violence. And th there's, two, there's two sections to this one. One is what we've been talking about for a long time is research. I mean, we have 30,000 deaths annually in, the, annually in the United States uh, because of firearms. Uh, this is a public health crisis, and the way we confront public health crises is through research and application of what we learn into preventing, in this case, uh, gun violence and other accidental uh, gun deaths. Uh, this, was, this was true for many years until about 25 or 30 years ago, the NRA no, did not like the fact that there was a specific allocation to research gun deaths uh, allocated for the CDC Injury Control Center. And so they did two things through their lobbying prowess. They came in and they had the, the amount of CDC funding cut by the exact amount that had been allocated to research gun violence to send a message. They also worked with Congressman Jay Dickey, Democrat from Arkansas, um, to pass what has been known as the Dickey Amendment. The Dickey Amendment basically said that CDC or the federal government it was a rider attached to the appropriations bill, could not spend any money to promote gun control. So in this environment, CDC and most other research entities took that to say, we can't even, we're not even gonna touch the topic of researching gun violence at all. And so for an entire generation, um, CDC did almost nothing to research gun deaths. And that not only, you know, stopped a bunch of promising research, it also discouraged an entire generation of researchers from going into this field. And so for years after years, um, there was nothing going on, almost nothing going on. Uh, Congressman Dickey has since, he's, he's passed away within the last few years, but before he did, he expressed his regret. It was never his intent to uh, stop the research. They just didn't want the government promoting gun control. But the way it had been spun, it did exactly that. After uh, the, the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School, President Obama specifically directed the CDC to, re, to reinstate research on gun violence, to look at the epidemiology of this problem, to figure out what we can do, what type of interventions can be done to, uh, to have an impact on it. Absolutely nothing happened. There was a lot of finger pointing. Um, CDC said, we can't do it because we don't have a specific appropriation. 
the appropriators on Capitol Hill said, you can do it, but they didn't provide a specific appropriation. So you had finger pointing back and forth, neither side willing to take that first step to initiate uh, the return of, of gun violence research uh, at the CDC um, until this year. Uh, we've been pushing on this. A lot of groups have been pushing on this for years and years. With the change in power in the House, uh, the Labor HHS subcommittee has now included $50 million specifically allocated to research gun violence at the CDC and a similar amount for the NIH in this year's appropriations bill. Um, so we're thrilled about that. The problem, obviously, is that the United States Senate also has a say in this. They are not inclined to do this right now. But at the end of the day, there will have to be an agreement reached between the House and the Senate on spending levels for the Department of Labor, Health and Human Services, et cetera, which includes CDC. So we are encouraging uh, folks to contact their senators uh, to express support for this research and to encourage them to make sure that, that, re that those funds are maintained when we have a final appropriations bill so that CDC can get back to the business of, of, of putting out grants to allow researchers to begin to look at this problem, not about gun control. Initially, people were caught up. We have to repeal the Dickey Amendment. We have to repeal the Dickey Amendment. That's a distraction. The Dickey Amendment says you can't promote gun control, and that's not what anybody's doing. We're researching why gun violence occurs, why gun deaths occur, and what can be done to prevent it, and that is what we need to stay focused on. The second issue related to guns, background checks, we think, and we believe it's a long-time AMA policy, are key components of finding a way to keep guns out of the hands of people who the law already says are not supposed to have access to guns. Uh, these include people who have been convicted of domestic violence, other excluded individuals. It's broadly supported. 97% of gun owners support requiring everybody who purchases a gun to undergo a background check so that we can determine whether they are legally allowed to have that gun. And in fact, the system has been pretty effective for those who are subject to it now. Just in, from 94 to 2015, more than 3 million applications were denied. People trying to buy a gun who were not legally allowed to, to have one. The problem is the only people subject to background checks right now are those that purchase guns from a federally licensed firearms dealer, so the local gun shop. If you go to a gun show and buy a gun from somebody who's there selling, you're not required to undergo a background check. If you go online and purchase a gun, you're not required to undergo a background check. And so it just makes absolutely no sense to have these gaping loopholes in a system that we know has been somewhat effective in preventing people from getting guns that aren't supposed to have them. Uh, so H.R. 8 has passed the House, again, running into opposition in the Senate for obvious reasons. So please contact your senators and ask them to support moving H.R. 8. It's a common sense legislation that has broad bipartisan support among the population, not so much on Capitol Hill. Um, we know that the, the background checks are effective for those who have to undergo them. You hear a lot of people say, oh, well, if we do this, only criminals will get, you know, be able to get guns. Well, that's nonsense. And we know that, we know that people are not supposed to have guns are being stopped, and so we need to expand it to all situations where, where guns are purchased. MACRA has been um, uh, uh, Big improvement over the SGR. 
but I think if you have noticed, it's not a simple thing. It's a very complicated program uh, that needs continual refinement. And we have been working and continue to work to make it a better program, to make it make more sense for physicians, to help people connect, oh, this thing I'm doing in macro is actually benefiting patient care or benefiting my patients, as opposed to just being some activity that I have to do to get paid by the government. Uh, so we continue to, to refine it. Uh, the Balanced Budget Act of 2018 included some important requirements that, re that allowed CMS to have some flexibility and how they applied MACRA so that cuts were not immediately forthcoming, that were supposed to be forthcoming uh, to certain providers. Uh, but there are still major things in MACRA that need work. The biggest thing is that between 2020 and 2025, the physician payment pool is supposed to not have any positive updates. The update is going to be zero. Now, we were supposed to have positive updates of half a percent every year for the preceding five years since the implementation of MACRA, but Congress decided that they would take some of those updates and spend them on other things. So we didn't even get the full benefit of the small updates that doctors were promised when MACRA was implemented. So it is critical that we continue to push to revisit this policy of no updates for 2020 to 2025. It is going to be a very costly thing to provide additional spending. However, um, we are looking at the likelihood of a big budget bill at the end of the year, so it is not out of the question that we, that we can achieve this. What we need to start doing and talking about these problems, though, is getting Congress used to the idea that they're going to have to revisit this issue. They feel like they just dealt with it a couple years ago. Remember when we went through the whole SGR repeal thing. But it's not about just one and done and the system's fixed. We have to continually work on it. Um, the other thing we need is there are bonuses for those who enter alternative payment models in, in the law, in the macro law. You're supposed to get a bonus payment for the first, I think it was six years. Well, the first three years, the problem was there's no way, there were no APMs. And so that bonus money just sat there unused with nobody being able to access it because there are very few alternative payment models available. So we would like Congress to, again, extend those, now that we have alternative payment models starting to become more readily available, we'd like to see Congress extend that the bonus eligibility period for an additional number of years so that physicians who are working to move into those models will, will benefit as was the intent under the original law. There are also lots of little technical problems, not, not just little technical problems, but ways that macro can work better. We can have measures that cross-cut against all the different macro, macro categories so that you don't have to report different measures or do different activities for every single category. We can better align uh, the way we score the things so people can begin to understand and see it as a more unified program. Literally dozens of things that, that can be done. Some of them can be done through administrative changes, but there are some things that CMS can't do, that CMS needs statutory authority to do. So, we're going to be asking that Congress please um, do that. And so as I mentioned, there is an opportunity to advance this later in the year, but we have to start talking to members of Congress about the need to do this uh, so that it's not at the end of the year we're coming to them saying, by the way, let's do this, and they're, they're not used to it. We've got to start the education process. We are, we are well into that and would welcome any support uh, from any, anyone who's willing to reach out to their legislators. Uh, legislators. Um, the last thing has been getting a lot of headlines, and it's uh, the surprise bill issue. Um, this has become a potent issue. 
that we're going to have to deal with. What we're talking about is surprise bills or unanticipated gaps in care, if you will. When you go to the, uh, when a patient goes to an emergency room in an emergency situation and is seen by providers, even though the hospital may be in network, the ER doc, the, the anesthesiologist, the pathologist, the radiologist may not be in network. Same thing can occur when a patient schedules surgery. They may do their due diligence, go to an in-network hospital, have an in-network surgeon, but it turns out that the anesthesiologist was not in-network or the pathologist. People that the patient can't, cannot, really, um, cannot really choose. So the insurance companies would point to doctors and say, doctors are, since there's no full demand for these, since there's no choice here, doctors are taking advantage of that situation to bill these patients as much as they can. We, that may happen some, but for the most part, it's much easier and better for physicians to be in network. What we're seeing is a narrowing of, um, a narrowing of coverage options uh, by plans, uh, which makes it more likely a patient's going to encounter this. So while everybody wants to protect the patient, we all agree on that. The patient should only pay what they would have paid in network if they were not able to access an in-network physician. We have to come to some fair resolution a way to, to, to resolve this difference in payments between the patient, I mean between the payer and the physician. Uh, New York has the great, a great model. It's an independent dispute resolution system, um, arbitration type system, baseball style. So they take the two offers and they see which is more fair and that's who prevails. We would, we would promote that. A lot of people are. Other proposals on the Hill right now include just the doctor gets whatever the plan pays in network without the benefit of other things you might get from being a network, which is gonna disincentivize plans from having networks. So we gotta avoid that situation. There are other things that you basically would require all physicians in a facility to sign a contract with every insurer who the hospital has a contract with. I mean, if, the insurer, if you have to go to the insurer and say, if I, I wanna to continue to practice in this hospital, will you please give me a contract? It puts you in a very weak negotiating position to get fair terms. And so the only fair way we see is a good, solid arbitration process that, allowed, that takes the patient out of the middle and creates a way for the provider and the payer to come to agreement on what a fair plan is, on what a fair payment amount is. The other key component of it, though, is network adequacy. We've got to require that plans offer adequate networks because if the, patient, the patients are paying for access to in-network physicians and when they don't have that, you're seeing skyrocketing. There's no limit on out-of-pocket deductibles for out-of-network, out-of-pocket calls for out-of-network care. Plans are shifting the burden and cost onto, their, onto the patients through narrower networks, through higher deductibles, uh, through more restrictive coverage requirements, and that has got to stop if patients want to be treated fairly, if plans really want to take patients out of the middle, we need to make sure that they build adequate networks so that patients can access the care that they were promised. That was Todd Askew on preventing gun violence, efforts to improve MACRA, and protecting patients from surprise medical bills. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine a podcast by the American Medical Association. To get exclusive AMA advocacy news and information impacting physicians, patients, and the healthcare environment, subscribe to the AMA Advocacy Update newsletter at ama-assn.org slash advocacy-update. 
You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.